passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. It's good to have you guys. Uh, before we jump into our text this morning, a couple quick announcements. So as you know, we are still on our capital campaign. We are hoping to end that around the end of um, January. We've received $456,000 to date of our $650,000 goal for our Spencer campus renovations and for some things here. So we're trusting the Lord will continue to provide as he always does through his people. Secondly, I also mentioned that we could not get the blueprints back from approved from Spencer. And remember, we took a Sunday to stop and to pray for that. We did, and that very week, Spencer approved the blueprints. And I, I told you, as soon as we were able to get those blueprints approved, we would get moving on those things. And so we, they approved them at the end of last week. We didn't have a chance to quite react by the weekend, but we do have a chance to be planned. Um, so starting this Thursday and this Saturday, we have construction going on down there. Thursday from 6 to 9 in the evening, and Saturday from 8 to 11 in the morning, we're going to be doing some destruction slash construction. I'll be sending information out on the Church Center app, and if you guys can respond and indicate, hey, I'm going to be there, that helps us know how many workers we have so we can have everything lined up so you can be really efficient when you get down there when it comes to putting up walls and painting and all those kind of things. Also, one thing we want to do before we launch into this is we really want to take time to pray over the facility because we want to pray for the work, not just do the work. And I told you we're going to get that on top of this right away. So this coming Monday night, 7 p.m. in the new facility, we're going to have a time with both campuses to pray over that facility and the work that will be done there. So there we go. We're, we're marching. Isn't that great? Yeah, finally. Well, let me go ahead and um, pray, and then we're going to dive right in to our text. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your word is going to teach us uh, about your beloved son and what your word is going to teach us about leadership and even the topic of parenting. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Today we are at a time where people are very critical of our leaders, especially political leaders. And as you guys know, the media loves to stir that kind of stuff up. The media especially loves to get into people's lives and find anything they may have done that could be questionable. And then they like to put it all over the headlines. And so we're accustomed to hearing about all kinds of scandals going on with our leaders. We think it's a normal thing in life when their dirty past is exposed. But when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 36, which is where we're going to find ourselves today, what we have here is an expose of the leaders of Israel. We're going to learn about their dirty past and actually their dirty present, the corruption that is going on in places of power. But this is not just another expose in this section of leaders that have gone bad. Actually, you'll find some real practical stuff as we go through this. We're going to learn a little bit about parenting right choices to make when your parents and wrong choices you can make when your parents so there's a lot of practical stuff in here as we dive into this so um 
just to give you context, if you're new, we are uh, just getting it, we're into the second chapter of First Samuel. First Samuel chapter one, we learned about the birth of Samuel, you remember, and his mother, Hannah, and how his mother actually decided to dedicate him to the Lord full time. And just after he was weaned, maybe age three, age four, she brought him to the tabernacle. And there he was going to be raised by the priests. Then last week, we went into what is Hannah's victory song. It was sort of a, a more poetic section, a little difficult, but we studied it and looked at her prayer. Now we are back into the narrative of the story of Samuel. It begins with these words. We'll look at verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So this is where we pick up the story again. Now usually what I typically do is I read the entire text and then we go back and study the entire text. What I decided to do this week is I take a longer section of text because Samuel's a long book, so I'm trying to cover a little bit more ground. And so I'm not going to read the text ahead of time. We're just going to let the story unfold as we go into it. And here's what we find as we get into it. Right after verse 11 and verse 12, we'll meet Eli's sons. And we're going to find that they were corrupt leaders. Eli, as we know, was the head of worship there in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And in chapter 1, we were introduced to him, and we were introduced to his sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And they served as priests under their dad. And at the time when we introduced them to you, I told you that these are really a nasty set of brothers. These are really bad dudes, like the ultimate problem children. And now we're going to find out why these guys are so incredibly gnarly and bad. Guys, it's about ready to get super juicy. Here we go. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now when you're the priests who are running the tabernacle, the description of worthless men is not a good description to go along with you. This word worthless in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It's the word belial. And I put these notes in your outline for you. Worthless in the Hebrew is belial. It means death. It means wickedness and rebellion. It later came to be synonymous with the devil. Now, not, if you go into the New Testament, you can find this. And Paul says this, like, what accord has Christ with Belial? Like, what do Jesus and the devil have in common? Absolutely nothing. Now, at this time, Belial does not officially mean the devil in common parlance. We're back in the Old Testament, but it means wickedness. It means darkness. It means the ultimate in bad character. The last time this word was used before the book of 1 Samuel is in the book of Judges. In Judges 19 and 20, it's used to describe the character of the men who gang-raped and then murdered a woman. That is not the kind of name you, or word you want to be used to describe the priests of the house of the Lord. My simple point is when we read the word worthless in English, it does not create nearly as much revulsion in our hearts as the word Belial in Hebrew was meant to draw out of people. 
it's almost like under-translated. These guys are incredibly wicked and bad. And why are they so bad? Well, the author of 1 Samuel tells us. They do not know the Lord. Now, the issue here is not ignorance of God. The issue is defiance of God. Their father is the chief or high priest in the tabernacle. Obviously, he taught them all about God, but rather than absorbing that knowledge, they rebelled against that knowledge and rebelled against God. But even though they rebelled, here's the problem. Because the priesthood passes down through the family line, at this point, they are left running the tabernacle under their father's supervision. These worthless men. Now, last week, we went through Hannah's prayer. You remember I said it has a lot of short statements in it? Any of these statements are like themes. Themes that'll just continually be unpacked throughout the rest of the books. One of the things she said was this. In verse 3, she said, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Even though these guys are incredibly wicked and worthless, God is not ignorant of this. God is watching this, and he is weighing this. And as we're going to see, he will be responding to this. Remember last week we learned in Hannah's prayer that God loves to respond to the cries of his people for rescue, and he can reverse any situation, no matter how hopeless it seems, that is what's going to begin unfolding here in this chapter. Remember, the priesthood goes from fathers to sons. It's a very corrupt family. There is no exit plan that anybody can see. Things are pretty hopeless, but not in the eyes of God. Let's go ahead and learn more about these guys, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas dishonored the offerings of the Lord. It says, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, the priests were entitled to a portion of the animal sacrifices. It was a benefit of their work. And at first, when we read this, it doesn't sound like these guys are doing anything particularly wrong, just using a fork to take a portion of the meat. And don't they get a portion of the meat? I mean, they're sort of, it sounds like doing a literal potluck. You know, whatever the fork brings up, that is what they get. But if you know the Old Testament background, you know there's something really screwy going on here. Because while the priests were entitled to a portion of the meat, it was a specific portion of the meat. Not any portion they wanted. Look what it says back in Leviticus. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh you shall give to the priest is a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. So if 
the priest was helping you offer a chicken. He got the right leg, and he got a chicken breast. That's what was his, his portion from the contributions. Now, of course, they're not offering chickens. They're offering things like lambs and bulls. The point is, you're getting a whole, like, bull leg or a bull breast. They are getting more than enough meat for what God has specified should be theirs. But they're not content with that to get what God has provided. They're waiting until people have then started to boil and cook the meat for the fellowship offering that they're supposed to eat with their family before the Lord. And they have, the priest has this servant come up with a long fork, says, oh, I want that piece, takes the meal essentially right out of the pot or the kettle or the pan and brings it back to the priest. These guys are stealing meat from the people, taking the best meat, the choice meat, bringing it back for themselves. They're not there to serve the people. They are there to use the people and to take from the people. The attitude is wrong. Not only that, but these guys are lazy. They don't even do this dirty work themselves. They send their, the priests send their servants to do it for them. So we begin to see these guys that this is a pretty poor set of priests. Now, it gets worse. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast, for he would not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, well, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. So they're not just taking food right out of people's kitchens. Now they've really emboldened themselves. They're taking the meat before it is even cooked directly from the people. These guys have been choosing what is the best cooked meat. Now they're going to cook the meat for themselves so they can roast it on their own. And they're taking the fat portions. Now why do you think these guys are taking the fat portions? Guys who, what? Yeah, fat adds flavor, right? So they want like the best tasting stuff, the fatty stuff. But here's the problem, folks. The fat, was that theirs to take? Absolutely not. And if you've been following along in your outlines, you can see where this is going. Leviticus 3.16 says, All the fat is the Lord's. The fat was to be burned on the altar. So they weren't just stealing from the people the food that was being cooked for their family, but now they're stealing the sacrifices directly from God. The fat was to be offered to him. By the way, it gets worse. Let me jump a little bit out of the order of the text. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
Well, some of you guys may say, well, who are these women? And what are they doing in the tent of meeting? Most likely, these are young women who would be there to clean in the tabernacle. But these guys, what they're doing is they're sleeping with them. Hophni and Phineas, by the way, they're married. They're having an affair with the young women. They cannot restrain themselves when it comes to their physical appetite for food. They're unwilling to restrain themselves when it comes to their sexual appetite when it comes to these young women. I told you they were worthless men. There is no other church to go to here, guys. There is one tabernacle in the nation. This is a really bad situation. It looks particularly hopeless. Nobody can come up and stop this corruption. But remember, as Hannah said, God hears the prayers of his people. God is especially good at reversing completely hopeless situations. The writer of uh, 1 Samuel summarizes it this way. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, what the author likes to do is he loves to do contrasts. We've seen that with Hannah and Peniah in chapter 1, the contrast there. Now we're going to see a contrast between Samuel and Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In fact, what he does is he tells a story. He flips back and forth between these two. So he flips over to Samuel at this point. And Samuel was a little priest in training. It says, And Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. There was another young man in Shiloh, not just Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons. A boy, age four, age five, age six, clothed in a linen ephod, clothed in the garb of a priest, a little tiny kid, going around as a priest. And here's what's interesting. His character was completely different from Eli's older, wicked sons. He was a man who loved God, didn't despise God. He served people, he didn't use people. And even as a young man, a little boy, people noticed the difference. People were watching him in contrast to Eli's older sons. Now let me give you an application. Oftentimes we say, you know, I don't want to be in a really dark and wicked environment where I work. Because if I work in a dark and wicked environment, I'm going to start to become like those dark and wicked people. And that might be true if your character is easily molded, but it doesn't always have to be that way. Samuel, young Samuel, the boy Samuel, worked in a very dark and wicked environment. Look at the older men who are around him, Hophni and Phinehas. But God placed him there for a reason. For a young man would shine like a light in a very dark place. And people would notice because the light shines brighter when it's in a very dark 
room, doesn't it? That's exactly what was going on here. I don't know where you work. It may be a dark place, but maybe God has you there so your light will shine brighter in pitch darkness because that's what he does. The story continues. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Remember in chapter 1, Hannah just couldn't stand going up to offer the yearly sacrifice because that's when Paniah loved to make fun of her and just, just demean her. Now she can't wait to go up for the yearly sacrifice. It's her time to see her boy. Her time to deliver another linen ephod, another little clothes of a priest, a little bit bigger each year. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now I know I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, but look at these opening lines of verse 20. Doesn't it seem like Eli is totally thrilled with Samuel? Don't you think he really is enjoying and loving Samuel, especially in contrast to his complete basket case sons? So I, I see Hannah and Elkanah. Eli is just constantly telling them how much he loves their boy and how thankful he is for their boy. And may God bless this woman for what she has done. And by the way, God does. The woman who was barren after this has five more children. This shows us another little timeless principle that I think we can apply to our lives. God loves to honor those who seek to honor him. God gives back to those who give to him. He does. You cannot outgive God. And that's exactly what happened to Hannah. By the way, Jesus reaffirms that. Luke chapter 6, he says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's not just an Old Testament principle. That is today, folks. Greatly applicable. Well, at this point, we've been introduced to Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons. We've been introduced to Samuel, the little tiny guy wearing the priest robe running around with an amazing character. Now we are going to look at Eli himself. And here we find Eli was a dysfunctional father. It says this in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I think the key thing here to, for us to, to zoom in on is the fact that Eli was very old. Because of his old age, he had become out of touch with what was happening at Shiloh. He didn't know directly what his children, Hophni and Phinehas, were doing, but he began hearing it from other people, the things they were doing, how they were being gluttons, 
how they were being greedy, how they were sleeping with the young women. Many people told him about these things, but here is the key as we start to look at some parenting issues. What does he do about these things? How does he handle the discipline of his children? And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? At first, we find that Eli makes the right choice. He takes the right first step. He talks to his sons about these things, about the sinful choices they were making. But this is the problem. That is where it stopped. All he did was talk to them. He did nothing more than speak words to them. He took no actions to stop them. He would just talk to his children, but he never stepped to the plate to punish his children. And this is a guess on my part, but I think that was probably the parenting style he used throughout all of their life. He would talk to them and tell them the things they did wrong, but he wouldn't actually step in and punish them or forcefully change them from the things they were doing wrong. Now the Bible talks about this when it comes to parenting. The Bible says sometimes parents have to step in and not just use words. Because children after a while, you sound like the teacher on the peanuts to them, you know? They just tune you out with your words. This is what it says. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is... My point is this. Sometimes, for some children, at some times, talk is not enough. There needs to be some form of consequence that they meet for their sin to get their attention. And consequences is not hating your child, the Bible says. That is a good way to love your child. We go to 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to find that David did not discipline his sons. And as a result... He had a disastrous set of things that happened with his sons. There was treachery, murder, rape, treason. All of this stuff happened in David's own children. And he failed to discipline his sons. Maybe that's part of the reason. At this point, Eli should have at least removed his sons from office and installed some qualified priests in their place. But he didn't do this. All he did was just keep talking to them, and they would tune their dad out. Took no actions to stop them. Now, Eli should know this is a very dangerous situation, what these sons of his are doing. Go back to Eli's ancestor. Go back to Aaron. Remember he had four sons? 
Two of them, the first two, Nadab and Abihu, did not take seriously and with respect the offerings of the Lord. They offered what is unauthorized fire. And you remember that's like a scene from the movie Backdraft where God shoots fire out from the temple and burns them all to a crisp. Nadab and Abihu get totally torched by God. That should be a warning for Hophni and Phinehas who are busy sleeping with the women who cleaned the temple and stealing the very offering, the fat portions that should go to the Lord, and eating it themselves. They're in a very, very scary place. But their dad would just talk to them. Wouldn't take any actions to stop them. Now to his credit, when Eli did talk to them, at least he was very clear about what was at stake. He said, guys... He essentially says it this way. You know, if you sin against another person, at least you have the offering system to be forgiven by. But if you sin against God by despising the offering itself, there is nothing left. You cannot sin against the very offering system that God has provided for you. Incidentally, this is similar to the stuff we see in the New Testament. For instance, the Bible says this in Hebrews. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? In other words, when we sin, we run to Jesus, right? Jesus forgives sin. That's like his whole thing. But when you despise Jesus and you blow off Jesus, where do you run to now? There is no plan B. Now, this is essentially what was going on with Hophni and Phinehas, just in the Old Testament, by them despising the offerings. And it says this, that they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Maybe it doesn't surprise us that they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father, that they got used to tuning out the words of their father. Because dad is just talk, he's no action. He doesn't actually do anything to stop us. Then it says, though, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now I know when you hear that, some of you just sort of pause and like, how could God intend to put them to death? How could God do this? Let me see if I can answer that a little bit quickly for you guys. Um, By the way, realize this was not a one-time occurrence with Hophni and Phinehas. This was a long-time, regular occurrence with Hophni and Phinehas, where dad had warned them and they chose not to listen. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, and also talks about this at the end of the the book of Genesis, that God, when we do things wrong, will convict us of sin. God will call us to repentance. But how we respond in that moment matters. Do we repent when God calls us to repent? Or do we harden our hearts against him? Because what happens if when God calls us to repent again and again and we keep hardening our hearts against him, what eventually happens is then God switches and instead of us hardening our hearts against him, he hardens our hearts so we can't repent as a consequence of our sin. We see this, by the way, in, with 
the Pharaoh when it looks like the, with the Exodus. At one point, we see this goes back and forth in the Exodus account. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. But then later it switches. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The point is, folks, there are times when we sin, and God calls us to repent. And we have that gift of the Holy Spirit, which is conviction of our sin. How do we respond in those moments? We have to run to Jesus, confess our sin, and repent of our sin. Do not harden your heart against that. If we continue to harden our heart against that, eventually God hardens our heart. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says this, As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, like the Exodus generation did. Well, as we've seen, this goes back and forth between Eli and his wicked sons, then back to Samuel. And here we go back to Samuel. Samuel kept growing in stature and favor with God and man. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and man. This is the fourth time we've switched back to Samuel. Eli's sons have a continually growing bad reputation. But Samuel, young Samuel, now has a continually growing good reputation with God and among the people. Now, does this sound familiar at all to a New Testament passage? When the writer of Luke talks about Jesus growing up, he takes this exact section of 1 Samuel and uses it to describe the maturity of Jesus. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So Samuel is growing up well. Now we're going to find out what happens. God pronounced judgment on Eli and his family for their sin. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Now it doesn't give us a name of this person, it just says a man of God. If you're used to the Old Testament, when you know that, that is sort of the code word for here comes a prophet. And a prophet is going to tell you what God says. And literally we know that because the prophet says, thus saith the Lord. These are God's words to you. But I indeed, but, but did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt? Subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. What he says here is, you know, God graciously chose your ancestors in the past. He chose Aaron. Got a simple job description, really not that hard to mess it up. Offer the offerings for the people. Burn the incense for the people. Wear the robe. That's it. Not only that, but he says this, God graciously honored Eli and his family in the present. And I give you more than enough food from the offerings of the people. But here's what happened. 
Eli and his sons chose to dishonor their history and their privileged position. He says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And you're honoring your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. I told you they're taking the best parts of the meat. There you go. That's where you find it. They're dishonoring the offerings and taking this from the people. Incidentally, I want you to notice here that it is not just Hophni and Phinehas that are eating portions of the offerings they shouldn't. It's Eli. Remember I told you he's a passive leader? Not correcting his sons, just speaking to his sons, but here he is eating the parts of the offering that should not be eaten. He's participating in this with his sons. By the way, I'll give you a little bit of Hebrew humor in here. My wife said not to say this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Sort of fun. He says here, you're honoring your sons above me by fattening yourselves. The word honor here in Hebrew is the word heavy. And he's saying you are fattening yourselves. You know if you look further in the text, Eli was a very large man. His sons were very big boys. And what God says here in the Hebrew is, you think they're heavy? You're treating them as heavier than me. Trust me, I'm heavier. I'm bigger. I'm the one who deserves more honor than your boys. But that's not the way he's living. Now, God honors those who honor him, and he diminishes those who despise him. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. There are consequences for dishonoring God. There are rewards for honoring God, and that is still true today. That truth passes through time. Let me show you what happens to Eli's descendants. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that has been, shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Well, that sounds interesting. Well, wow, it's pretty rough. Does God carry this out? Exactly. 1 Samuel 22 we're going to read about a guy named Doeg the Edomite who goes to Nob and slaughters 85 of the priests, all the descendants of Eli. Wipes them out. Everyone but one, Abiathar, he survives. He serves as a priest under David, but he joins in a conspiracy to undermine David. And as soon as Solomon, David's son, gets on the throne, guess what he does with Abiathar? 
kicks him out, replaces him with a new priest named Zadok, who comes from earlier in Aaron's line, and Eli's line is completely taken out of the priesthood forever. Remember, God can reverse things that look unreversible? Exactly what happens. There is part of this prophecy, by the way, that he will see. 1 Samuel 2.34 And this shall come upon your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas shall be, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. That's coming right around the corner. 1 Samuel chapter 4, Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day. Right afterwards, Eli dies. That whole section in the priesthood is knocked out. Guess who's left standing at the house of the Lord? Samuel. Isn't God good at reversing unreversible situations? Answering the cries of the people in ways they didn't imagine or understand? Samuel was raised up to be a faithful priest. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Well, in one sense, this is Samuel but he actually will function more of a prophet than a priest. Ultimately, this is going to be Jesus, who will be the anointed, who will get in and out to his house forever. But here's the last thing I want to point out for you before we get into the applications. God has a way of making sure the punishment fits the crime, doesn't he? Remember these guys who were gluttonous bullies? What will happen to all of Eli's descendants? They are going to be, read this, Hungry beggars. The exact opposite. Now, as I finish studying this, there's all kinds of applications. Let me give these to you. Number one, when people in positions of power do not see themselves as accountable to God, they become selfish, greedy, lazy, and start to use people instead of serve them. Isn't that true? Now, that's not just true of Eli and his sons. That's not just true of people in government positions in our country. But that's true of you, and it's true of me. As soon as we forget that we are accountable to God and we'll give an answer to God, we will become selfish, greedy leaders and people. It's very true. Number two, parents dishonor God when they close their eyes to their children's sin and fail to discipline them. We saw that in there. A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline is not easy, folks, but it is essential. Disciplining your children is essential for your children's future. Number three, sometimes parents need more than words for correction. Sometimes children need to face the painful consequences of sin. It says in Proverbs 22:15, folly is bound up in the heart of, the of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Sometimes when it comes to children, in some situations, words are not enough. They need to face the painful consequences of their sins. That is an act of loving them when you correct them, not of hurting or hating them. 
Number four, and this is going to be a little controversial, adult children should seek the godly wisdom of their parents, and parents should not be afraid to carry out consequences for adult children who rebel. Typically what we say is when a kid gets out of the home, they're on their own. And in many ways that is true. But oftentimes they get out of the home and mom is still paying, or mom and dad are still paying their car insurance, still paying their cell phone bill, still helping them with college tuition. And then what happens is the kids start living an immoral, depraved life. And parents say, well, they're on their own. I'm like, no, they're not. You still have control in their life. You still have authority in their life. You need to step up and provide painful, if necessary, correction in their life. I told you David refused to do that. His children turned out to be a disaster. Samuel refused to do that with his children, we'll see in the future. And they also went astray. Sometimes you need to step up as adults and talk to your adult children. Number five, and this one was especially important to me. Children are responsible for their choices. Eli's sons refused to listen to their father's godly wisdom, and it ruined their life. Samuel listened to Eli's godly wisdom and was mightily used by God. At one point, we've been focusing here really on Eli's failures. But children, you are responsible for your choices. You are. Eli's sons wouldn't listen. Their lives were ruined. Samuel's sons did listen. For Samuel did listen, and he became a leader of a nation. It matters what choices you make. And essentially, this is it. Number six, God honors those who honor him. Those who despise God will be lightly esteemed. What a contrast between Eli's sons and Samuel. It all boils down to, will you choose to honor our God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Covered a lot of stuff today. I ask that you would help us to remember that you honor those who honor you and those who despise you will be lightly esteemed. May we be men and women who choose to honor you and follow you. May we be also people who learn from the lesson of Eli and about his uh, weakness and refusal to correct his sons, which actually boiled down to a lack of love for his sons, Lord. I ask especially, Lord, that you would help us to be men and women who learn from your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.